Please take a seat. Now, kids, most of our kids here have been raised in Manitoba. Did you know that if you go on a trip far, far away from here, you find these things called hills? <laughs> That's when the ground goes up and then it goes back down. And when these hills get really big, we call them mountains. And it doesn't count if you have to include the floodway in the slope. <laughs> now, kids, is it easy or hard to climb a mountain? It's pretty hard to climb a mountain. Some mountains are bigger than others, but climbing a mountain is hard. So when people talk about something really difficult that they have to do, they often say that was like climbing a mountain. You might say doing that test was like climbing a mountain. Eating every last bite of salad was like trying to get over a mountain. Now, sometimes when it comes to things like trusting God, we talk about mountains, mountains in our way as we trust God. Oh, remembering that God is with me on really hard days is like climbing a mountain. Or... My parents keep pointing out a way that I am sinning, and I just keep forgetting, and I can't stop doing that. That's, that would be like climbing a mountain. Do you know what Jesus tells us in our passage today? He says that if we trust God, he moves those mountains. And God wants us to know that no matter how hard things seem to us, God's promises to us don't change. He is a good father. So when things seem like a mountain, talk to your parents or someone you love and let them help you remember that God definitely keeps all of his promises and he can move mountains to do that. Let's hear about how he teaches that to his disciples. Our short passage this morning comes in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And it takes place right at the end of the events that we were looking at last week. You'll remember when Jesus was cleansing the temple last week. Before he goes to the temple, he sees a fig tree. And I want to just read really quick a couple verses from last week. Look at Mark 11, verses 12 to 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. From there, of course, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He casts out the money changers, those who are trading animals. And what he does to the fig tree, that condemnation, shows what is going on when he goes to the temple. God's people have become like a vine that was not producing fruit. And that lack of fruit would eventually lead to judgment and condemnation, just like Jesus had condemned the fig tree. Now, after Jesus' actions in the temple, he and his disciples come back. 
and they find the fig tree has withered and died, just like Jesus has said. Now, let's jump to verse 20 and read verses 20 to 25 of chapter 11, where they see the fig tree, and we hear Peter's response to this. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. At this point, near the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, Peter and the other disciples have seen amazing things. They know that Jesus has power over Satan, that he has power over creation, power over sickness, even death. They've seen the storm calmed, they've seen the feeding of the 5,000, and yet Peter's sort of exclamation of happy surprise shows that he did not take for granted when Jesus cursed the fig tree that that was going to happen. He wasn't confidently expecting it. So when they got there and the fig tree was withered, he felt just this impulse to point it out. Hey, Jesus, look, you said the fig tree wouldn't bear fruit. And look, there it is. It died, just like you said. Now, Jesus points out that this lack of just simple, restful expectation on Peter's part could, uh, at, at its heart, be a lack of faith. So our first point this morning is Jesus' immediate response to Peter, his primary exhortation in this passage, have faith in God. Do you expect that the things that God has said will happen will come to pass? It's a pretty simple question. Do you expect that the things that God says and the things that God promises are definitely going to happen? You and I are not eyewitnesses of the miracles of Jesus like the disciples were, but we do have many of the things that the disciples would have also had for the sake of their faith. We have the testimony of God's word. Peter's faith was meant to rest, not just in what Jesus had done, but in what he had heard preached from the scriptures, just like us. Our God is the God who led slaves out of Egypt through great and powerful plagues, through opening up the Red Sea. Our God is the God who responded to Elijah's prayer to bring fire from heaven after those priests of Baal had danced and wore themselves out for hours and hours and hours. Our God defeated kings and kingdoms and armies to deliver his people. Our God brought them through the desert. And now we have testimony from Peter and the apostles as well of all that they saw, what they experienced, what they trust in. We can read all of those promises that God has made, that God has kept. And then we can look at history. We can look at our own lives and we can say, yes, this is the same God. This is the God who keeps his promises. Now, like Peter, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we also know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. 
He is the Son of God. He is equal with the Father. He has proven himself in signs and in wisdom. And Jesus is about to make the ultimate declaration of who he is and what he does. He is about to rise from the dead for the salvation of his people. Does all of that, does knowing all of that mean that you have a restful expectation that everything that God says is going to happen? Can you even bring your requests to God with expectation? Jesus gives an example of this kind of expectant faith. He goes on to say in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus is making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. Peter was shocked to find that a fig tree obeyed the command of Jesus. Jesus says Peter shouldn't have been surprised If a whole mountain had been uprooted and fallen into the sea, if that had been what Jesus said would take place. And he's not only saying that he himself could make such a command, but that anyone who asks with faith will see this happen. Now, we've already seen that whatever miraculous natural signs Jesus performs are meant to point to a very specific purpose. He's always got a reason for the supernatural things he's doing. They aren't just magic tricks meant to shock and awe. Look at how much power I've got. This is amazing. They do tell us that he is God. They do demonstrate his authority as God. But Jesus' miracles always also tell us something about his messianic role, his ministry. They teach us who he is. So we can expect that when Jesus refers to a miracle, like a mountain being cast into the sea, he is also explaining something about his ministry that he wants us to trust in. The idea of a physical ministry, miracle, pointing to a greater spiritual miracle that he accomplishes. So if we understand some of the context that his disciples would have had when they heard this, we can understand why they didn't immediately start praying for these massive natural phenomena to take place. They did do miracles, the apostles. They demonstrated that they had a ministry from God, but we don't read in Acts about them going about throwing mountains into the sea. So we can ask, what did the apostles understand that they were being invited to do when Jesus said this to them? The idea of God moving mountains is found in multiple places in the Old Testament. We even uh, sang it a little bit in in, in Psalm, I believe it's a song from Psalm 114 that we sang just before this sermon. And it's a reference to the most powerful works that God performs for his people. In Zechariah 14, We read that the Mount of Olives, very close to where Jesus is, right at this point where he's talking, gets split open. And that's talking about a judgment upon God's enemies. In uh, Luke read for us Isaiah 49, in which the mountains are essentially leveled. They become an open highway so that God's people can come to him from near and far. Now, these are two connected ideas. Moving mountains refers to God laying low the greatest opposition, the greatest obstacles to the salvation of his people. It is quite possible 
when Jesus was referring to it in this context, that his disciples could see a very specific mountain that would have referred to a specific judgment that Jesus was promising would take place. That would fit into the context of the judgment of the temple that we saw last week. But we don't really have that clear context here, and it doesn't matter because Jesus opens it up into a broad application for all of us. He says that we are to come to him and expect that every opponent to God's salvation will be overcome. Every obstacle will be removed and all that he calls to him will faithfully be able to come with no mountains in their way. Now, if that promise seems to you less exciting than watching physical mountains be picked up and thrown into the sea. If that seems less astounding, ask yourself this. Have you ever struggled to be confident that God will keep his promises in your own life? Has that ever seemed hard for you to be confident in? Have you struggled to trust that God will do everything he says he will do? For you, simply regarding your own salvation, even your sanctification. Are there obstacles to your faith in your life that seem just too hard to overcome? Are there challenges that seem insurmountable? Are there problems in your life where you have to confess that if God dealt with them, you would respond a little bit like Peter? <laughs> hey, that thing that God said he would do happened. Wow, who'd have thought? Maybe the mountain that seems impassable to you is opposition to your faith. Maybe you are so full of anxiety when you think about this culture and the ways that it has progressed away from what someone might call a predominantly Christian worldview. Maybe your kids have faced real opposition in school. I know you've talk, talked to some of you that have experienced that real pressure and opposition to their faith. Maybe you've seen that in your workplace. I've talked to some of you experienced that. Maybe a family member or a friend has just been so antagonistic to the truths of the Bible. Has that led you, as you look at the world at large or even at your own family, to doubt that God is confidently going to see his church through these storms, through this season in history? Have you given up asking that God would do so? Maybe the obstacle that makes you feel hopeless is sin that someone is committing against you. A close family member who's cruel to you. Opposition or discrimination that you have faced, maybe within your family, maybe at work, in your community. Maybe you know of someone who hates you, who schemes against you. Has the sin of others against you started to make you feel hopeless and you've just come to expect the worst? You've lost confidence that God can deal with sin being committed against you. Not, not just at the day of judgment where we know he certainly will, but maybe that he would plan to do so even now. Or maybe the obstacles that you see in your life are circumstantial. 
There's situational challenges, job challenges, financial challenges. They just don't seem like they can be overcome. Your life feels like such a difficult, twisted mess right now that even God untangling that seems pretty unlikely to you. Maybe the obstacle, the mountain that seems insurmountable is in your own heart. It's a matter of your own faith. Maybe your own battle with sin and your sanctification The mountain that you have given up praying to see removed is your own sin. Fighting temptation just seems impossible to you. You've given up. You now expect of yourself that if I have the opportunity to sin, I'm going to sin. And there's nothing that can be done about that. Whether it's gratifying your lust, losing your temper, gossip, laziness, Whatever it is, that sin is just a fixture in your life. And if God removed it, you'd be shocked. It would be like amputating your own heart. From outside or within our own hearts, most of us have certain things in our life that we are tempted to see as impassable mountains. They sit squarely between us and our rest in God, our delight in his promises. Brother and sister, would you be shocked to see that mountain cast up and thrown into the heart of the sea? To see the one who has sinned against you repent or be removed as an obstacle that can no longer harm you. To persevere through great storms with confidence and rest that nothing that takes place will be able to sever you from the love of God. Can you face your sin with absolute confidence that sin can be repented of and it can be put to death and it can be forgotten forever? I want to point you to one of my favorite verses. It's among Paul's parting words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the prayer of a man who is expectant, And confident that God will cast every mountain into the sea that stands between him and his full and final rest in God. So when Paul sees those mountains on the horizon, we know what he will do. He will get on his knees and he will go to his father expectantly, asking that God will deal with those mountains and knowing that God will deal with those mountains. He will bring me through every single evil deed. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory. So when God answers his prayers, a man with that prayer is not surprised. Can you say the same thing as Paul with the same confidence and rest? A confidence that Paul faced even as he was walking the road to his own martyrdom. The Lord will bring me through every evil deed. The Lord will 
lead me safely into his heavenly kingdom. As Jesus teaches about this faithful expectation, it's very natural, of course, that he transitions this into an exhortation about prayer. It's hard to talk about Christian faith without talking about prayer. Calvin's statement, which I think I've made before from this pulpit, bears repeating that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. The best way you can understand your own faith, more than looking at your emotions, things that have happened to you, even at times your own thoughts, the best way you can understand your faith is by considering your own life of prayer. So Jesus says in verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So consider your own prayer life. Maybe you see in your prayers the ways that you really do enjoy God, the ways that you rest in him, the areas of your life where you trust in him. There are things for which you are quick to give God praise, to worship him and glorify him. Now your prayer life might also experience where you lack confidence in God. It may show this to you, perhaps regarding specific challenges and trials, perhaps as regards all of your life. Have you stopped bringing to God your most significant needs and anxieties and challenges because you have forgotten that these are things that God desires that you would hand over to him? Maybe you feel a quiet self-confidence. You, you forget to bring things to God because you look in the horizon at everything before you and you believe you are up to the task. Prayer is at best like a good shot of espresso or a catnap. It will help. I can do this, but prayer is going to give me that extra little boost I need to make sure that I do it really well. Or maybe you so lack self-confidence. You look in yourself and you are so sure that you cannot do the things you need to do that even the idea of going to God and asking him to bear those burdens, to be with you through them, seems useless to you. What would be the point? You are so overwhelmed and anxious about your trials that this has just become a lack of confidence that even God could do anything to help you in them. James warns of this danger in our own hearts, a doubt in God's character or his promises or his power, and he calls it double-mindedness. James 1, 5 to 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, one of the things that God has promised, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But... Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Maybe you excuse your own lack of prayer by saying that you believe in God's sovereignty. Oh, God's sovereign, isn't he? He's in control. He will do what he pleases. My prayer can't change his plan. My friends, that is not what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. That's called fatalism. And you can be a fatalist without being a Christian. Things are just going to go the way that they go, and there's nothing that I can do to stop it. Now, is our God in control? Yes, our God is in control. He is in complete control of the universe. Does he have a sovereign plan for history? Yes, God has a sovereign plan for history. What is that plan? Do you know that plan? 
It is that he would save a people for himself to be their father. It would be that he would call out a people who would call out to him in prayer and he would hear their prayers and answer them. That's always been the plan. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Does Jesus tell us God is sovereign there? He does. He tells us that he is the God who feeds the sparrows, who clothes the lilies, down to the smallest blade of grass, down to the smallest creature. He is the God who oversees and takes care of all of it. And what does Jesus tell us to learn from that sovereignty? That he is the God who is a good father, who takes care, most of all, of his children. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. This is what Jesus says of that perfectly sovereign God. Because he is sovereign. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The sovereign God, the Lord of creation, Power over the universe is telling you, he is exhorting you, he is commanding you to ask, to seek, and to knock. It is his plan that with his lordship over the universe, he would answer because you have asked. He would meet you because you have sought, and he would open when you have knocked. And so Jesus here exhorts us to the same regular expectant prayer rooted in confident faith. Is that your prayer life? Is that how you pray? If not, don't you want that? Doesn't that sound really good? <laughs> to be more with your loving father and to be with him expecting that he listens to you and he answers to persist as you come to him not persisting because you're doubting he will answer but persisting because you know that he can answer and he will answer offer prayers because you trust in him i know who my god is i know who what my god has done that is why i pray now i think we should stop here and address what some of you are i'm sure thinking what about those prayers he didn't seem to have answered? Even as Jesus teaches us to have expectant faith, there are still reasons why prayers may not be answered in the way that we have hoped. Of course, we might be praying for something sinful. That is true. Some of us may be able to look back on a time where we know we were praying for something sinful. We might be praying for something that is not inherently sinful, but the reason that we want it is sinful. James says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Is that true in your prayer life? There are mountains and obstacles you want God to remove that are keeping you from having those idols you really wanted. (laughs) God, there are just so many things getting in the way of my ambition. (laughs) There are so many things getting in the way of the wealth that I wanted, the success that I wanted, the power that I wanted. I read an article about a celebrity who just lived a terrible life of addiction and depression and said that he had offered one prayer in his life to God, and it was, please, God, make me famous. You can do anything you want to me, just make me famous. It is good for us to stop and consider whether or not we are praying for something that is actually quite clearly against the will of God. God's word would show us that this is not a prayer that God will answer because it is against what he has said he will do. And the reason God hasn't answered that prayer might be that he is just more committed to your perseverance in the faith than you are. I'm sorry. That thing that you are treating like a removal of an obstacle, that would be raising up a mountain in the way of your faith and God will not do it. He will not give you idols to love instead of him. Now, it is also true. There are good things that we pray for that are not against the righteous will of God, which in his sovereign will and his plan for us, He has not granted as we have prayed for them. Because he has a good sovereign plan that we may not understand even until we see him in glory. There are prayers for our family, for our health, for peace, which are prayed in faith, which are good to ask for, which we ought to keep asking for and are not answered in the way that we desire. Paul himself, the example of faith we referred to uh, earlier, he knew that experience in praying that the thorn would be removed from his side and finding that that prayer was not answered in the way that he had hoped. This is where we must trust that God is wiser than we can understand. He has certainly made a promise that all things will work together for good. That is not a promise that we will experience no trials. That is a promise that he has a good plan in the midst of the worst trials. Paul's thorn in his flesh was somehow in ways that Paul might have been able to see, maybe in ways that Paul himself could not see. It was a part of God's plan to rescue Paul from every evil deed and bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Another thing that is helpful when we are suffering, a good reminder, is that prayers of request are not the only prayers we make to God. We also bring to him prayers of worship and adoration, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession. These prayers help us when we make our requests to remember God's character, to remember his promises, to remember the things that he has done that we might have taken for granted. To remember with thankfulness the many healthy days that we have had, which we have perhaps not attributed to God whether that was just him keeping us healthy, whether ordinary medical means healed us from sickness. We remember his provision, the days of joy that he has given us. And of course, we are reminded when we pray in worship and adoration and thanksgiving, we're reminded of his promises, which he has kept. We praise him for the mountains he has already removed in our own lives, even in history. We remember that he has given us Christ. We remember his commitment to our sanctification, to lead us unto glorification. 
So pray with adoration, with thanksgiving, with repenting and forgiveness, and let that help you and encourage you as you also bring to him your many requests, your needs, knowing the God to whom you bring them to. Returning to our passage, Jesus gives Peter and us one more injunction here, which touches on this question of what it means to pray according to God's will. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Our third point is pray with a heart that loves forgiveness. For Jesus, someone who comes to God in prayer, expecting that God will hear his prayers and yet has not forgiven those who have sinned against them, is not praying according to God's will. They have misunderstood the God they are praying to. They have misunderstood what it means to come to him in prayer. There are other examples in scripture where we can see that refusing to repent of sin does influence our prayers and God's response to them. Because our love of sin is undermining our prayers. It is showing them to be dishonest. It is rejecting the very premise upon which we claim to be praying. Such is true of unforgiveness. Jesus reminds us of this verse of the one who we are praying to. He says, when you pray to your father who is in heaven... This verse echoes Jesus' teaching uh, from the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the Lord's Prayer. By noting here, in this context, that God is our Father, Jesus is giving us a quick reminder of the amazing gift of grace that it is that we can come to God in prayer at all. We are invited to call the Maker of the universe our Father. And how much greater is that gift when we remember who we were to him, enemies, rebels, dead in our sins and our trespasses. How can we call God our father in heaven? It's because the only begotten son of God hung on a cross and there cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God bore the wrath of God so that we who deserve the wrath of God can come to him as children of God. Every prayer that you pray to God and call him Father is an amazing, miraculous display of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus. If we try and offer prayers to God, our father, while refusing, knowingly refusing to forgive sin committed against us, we have either misunderstood or rejected the gospel that is the necessary foundation on which we offer our prayers. Remember Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 of the servant who was forgiven an enormous debt, but then goes and finds another servant who owes him petty money. And has him thrown in prison for not being able to pay. Friend, no one who has even begun to fathom the punishment that their sin deserves. The cost that Jesus paid to take it. The price of our forgiveness. No one who has fathomed that would ever feel entitled to refuse to forgive the sin of others against them. 
If we refuse to forgive the sin of others, if we delight to treat others without grace, then we must believe that we somehow found ourselves more worthy of forgiveness than they were. There was something in us that made us a better candidate for God's forgiveness than them. More likely to have our prayers answered than them. So if you are refusing to forgive anyone, Jesus says, beware. Your refusal to extend God's love to others shows that you are refusing to understand the love he has shown to us. And thus, you don't really understand all that it means to come to God in prayer and call him Father. Jesus even warns, God will not forgive your sins. He is suggesting, he is going so far as to say, that if you ultimately do not forgive, you have so totally misunderstood grace that you have rejected the gospel. And your prayers are no different than the prayers of a Muslim or a Mormon. You are praying to a deity who might go by the same name as God, but who is a whole different God altogether than the one who has revealed himself in scripture and the gospel of Jesus. Do you know that there is sin someone has committed against you that you refuse to forgive? Then be reminded of the gospel. Remember the cost that was paid so that your sin could be forgiven. Remember Jesus willingly paying that cost for you on the cross. Let that expose your self-righteousness and pride. And then know that because of the gospel, you can repent of refusing to forgive. And then go and forgive. Maybe this means a really tough conversation on the horizon with someone who has sinned against you. Feel free to find one of our elders to talk about how to have that conversation, whether it needs to be had, what it would include. Maybe all that is left is a change in your own heart. That is all that is needed. But if you believe that God has forgiven your sin, has offered you a place in his family, even as you deserve to go to hell, then you must forgive. How many times? 70 times 7 times 7 times 7 times 7 times 7 times 7 over and over and over as he has forgiven you. Now today we are invited to come together to the Lord's table to be reminded of the cost of our redemption, the price of our prayers, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus remind us of the horrible pain that Jesus bore for us unto death. But they also sweetly remind us that here is free access to the throne of God through his death and resurrection. This table reminds us of what Hebrews says, a way has been opened through the curtain into the holiest places of the temple in heaven made without hands so that we can draw near in prayer with full assurance and find grace and help in our time of need. So let us be reminded together of the great cost of our forgiveness 
of our free reception into the presence of God, our access to call him Father and even expectantly bring requests to him and know that he is a gracious Father who gives good gifts to us. Remind you as we come to this table that this is for those who are already reconciled to God, who already have this access to him in Christ as a part of his family. So if you're not yet a Christian, not yet a member of a church that preaches the gospel, then do not join us at this table yet. Be saved. Be reconciled to God. Be baptized. Be a part of his church. And then we will rejoice to share in this beautiful expression of our free access to God together. I would call forward our elders as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can offer this prayer to you that we are offering now. Oh, Father, show us in our hearts the great miracle of prayer. Strangers and enemies and aliens of God, gathered together as a people, coming into your holy presence and saying, Our Father who art in heaven. May we not just delight in this wonderful access, but may it work in us great faith that we would come to you expecting you to answer. That we would believe that any obstacle to our faith, to our rest in you, is a mountain that can be hurled into the sea. And Father, reveal in our hearts if there is sin or a lack of forgiveness that has undermined the gospel by which we can pray undermine what it means to call you father may we repent and find you gracious to forgive and father may we be given a restful faithful joy and confidence in christ as we come together to this table delighting in this access we have to you and encouraging one another in faith as we look forward to the day when our savior returns pray this in his name amen